Retrogram, Revisiting TV Futures from the Past, An Examination of Yesteryear's Television Science Fiction, Fantasy, Spy-Fi, Horror, and Superhero Shows. Commencing, Retrogram. Retrogram number 7152. 72 at 50, part 1, the week of December 27, 1971. Welcome back to Retrogram, a podcast that rolls back the tape, yes, you children of the digital age, I said tape, to a week's worth of sci-fi, superhero, horror, spy-fi, or fantasy TV from the past, so we can see if the good old days really were the good old days. And here we are, we've survived 2021, yay! Don't let the door hit you on the ass on your way out, 2021. Look, the truth is, nostalgia is a road paved with selective memory. The good old days weren't always that good, and I think that culturally we are finally coming to that inescapable collective realization. Finally. And Retrogram is not a podcast that's going to cure cancer or right old wrongs. It just covers TV shows from the past. So maybe I'm way out of my depth on making any broader cultural commentary than that. But we're at a point now where it seems like the eve of every new year is the eve of a year that could destroy us as a civilization. Surely it didn't feel that way 50 years ago as we slid from 1971 into 1972. Well, let's see. In the last months of 1971, Walt Disney World opened Greenpeace was founded. Police corruption hearings began in New York City. The People's Republic of China took over China's seats in the United Nations. The UK voted to join the European Economic Community. Led Zeppelin IV was released. Mariner 9 became the first spacecraft to orbit Mars. That whole thing with D.B. Cooper happened, and we've already covered that week in Retrogram. Iran occupied territory in the Persian Gulf while India and Pakistan went to war, leading U.S. forces to shift naval deployments toward the Bay of Bengal. It was following their brief conflict that both India and Pakistan fixated on developing nuclear weapons. Doctors Without Borders was first organized at the end of 1971, and the first McDonald's location in Australia opened in Sydney, which I'm not sure why I mentioned those in the same breath, but let's say I haven't eaten at McDonald's in a very long time. Yeah, I kid. It was probably in response to all that other stuff, plus Vietnam, which was still an ongoing conflict. Okay, so that's not the most stable world situation to have at the end of the year. Just days into 1972, however, the first handheld scientific calculator entered the market at a price point just shy of $400. And the space shuttle program was formally announced as NASA's new direction after Apollo at a price point of well north of $400. It was the year that saw the official starting gun fired for the Voyager missions to the outer planets, the launch of Pioneer 10, and the founding of Atari and HBO. Oh, and yours truly might have debuted at some point during this year as well. I'll explain later. With all that in mind, what was on the tube as 1971 turned into 1972?
Night Gallery, Season 2, Episode 14. The Different Ones, Tell David, and Lagoda's Heads. Aired Wednesday, December 29th, 1971 on NBC. The Different Ones. A man walks into a room occupied only by someone with a hood tied over his head, sitting before a chessboard. Hearing the sound of children singing outside, the newly arrived man opens a window and tells them to get lost before he calls the cops. See, they had Karens in the 70s, too. Whoever is under the hood doesn't make a sound as the newcomer apologizes for the behavior of those children. But when the man says that maybe his hooded charge would be happier somewhere else, a single question is asked. Where, father? Oh, wow, I think we've got some daddy issues here. Like, maybe daddy is an issue, but I digress. The boy under the hood talks about freak shows and winding up pickled in a jar, which, of course, dad says will not happen. He just thinks the boy would be happy with others of his own kind. He then leaves, goes downstairs, and sits in a high-tech chair facing what looks like a TV screen built into a wall. He punches a few buttons on the device built into the arm of that chair and asks for whichever government department deals with deformed children. Oh, the operator tells him that's the Department of Special Urban Problems. She patches him through. Special Urban Problems says, Sup! Or that's what they'd say in this century, since that's short for Special Urban Problems. Um, <clears throat> anyway, dear old dad haltingly tells the SUP operator that his son has a deformity. The operator asks for his name and sector. Dad's name is Paul Koch. His son's name is Victor, and Victor is only 17. Victor's mom died. And the nature of Victor's deformity? Victor, who has been lurking on the stairs listening to his father place this call, lunges into the screen himself, declaring himself an ugly, ugly freak. Hey, <laughs> that went well. Cut to a futuristic office. Paul Koch is being told by an administrator that the Federal Conformity Act of 1993 only covers mental illness, not purely physical deformities. Paul has looked into surgically correcting Victor's appearance, but it can't be done. The administrator says that the choices are for Victor to stay with Paul for the rest of his life, or Paul can do the right thing and have his teenage son humanely euthanized? Wow. Koch is on his way out the door. Okay, maybe he's a good dad after all. When the administrator gets a call indicating that there may be a third possible alternative. A special relocation exemption for cases like Victor Koch. And that exemption is to make Victor an exchange student on another planet. As it happens, the underpopulated planet Boreon is particularly eager to receive humans regardless of their condition. And they'll pay for the trip. What do you say, father of the year? Victor's already packing for the trip. Anywhere, he says, is better than this. Victor boards a Saturn 1B rocket, and Paul Koch watches his son blast off into space, a single tear streaming down his cheek. The planet Boreon, a land of high-tech corridors and hexagonal doorways, because it's the third rule of retrogram that the future is all hexagons. Victor carries his luggage with him and finds only one other person there, another young man who looks like a perfectly normal human being. But he is also from Boreon, and he's the exchange student who's trading places with Victor. When Victor asks why his counterpart is leaving Boreon, the young man says, Hey, you don't have to mince words. I'm used to being gawked at, called names. Look at me. I am hideously deformed. And with that, the young man boards the rocket to begin his trip back to Earth.
Then the actual welcome committee shows up. They all look like Victor. In fact, they think he's quite hunky and handsome. Looks like Victor's going to be pretty happy here. The end. The most important question to ask here, is Victor's chess set edible? They look like overgrown versions of those little round peppermint candies. That's why I ask. Man, we have a lot of fine NASA stock footage in this episode. Now, this is not the first time Night Gallery has used a heap of footage from the Apollo program. But boy, is a lot of it used here, particularly the Apollo 4 upper stage film footage of the command and service module rocketing away. Pretty familiar footage, though more of it is shown here than I think I have ever seen in a fictional program. By modern standards, the pacing of early 70s TV was languid and kind of off and this is a perfect example of that. Now, there's a line about the Federal Conformity Act of 1993. What the hell is that? Is that where Rod Serling saw human society heading in just 21 years' time? Of course, maybe Rod, as always, has a point. I myself have been on the receiving end of plenty of fast shaming, and of course, homophobia and transphobia and just plain racism are rampant. Government agencies that keep people, including children, from other nationalities in cages. Are we really that far from outlawing nonconformity 50 years after this story premiered? Maybe, maybe not. 2022 is a midterm election year. Maybe you should start looking at the federal, state, and local levels at who you're going to be voting for this year. Maybe you should start asking questions of those candidates. Maybe you should start looking at what they've already done prior to running for office, or if they're incumbents, at how they have already voted in that office. Every election year is an opportunity to cast your vote for the future you leave your kids and other people's kids with. Rod Serling or Roddenberry? But on a more personal level, is it possible for Paul Koch to come out of this resembling anything remotely like a decent father? He seems to want his son to be happier. He seems to show some emotion as Victor leaves Earth. But at the same time, it also seems like he just wants Victor gone. As if assuaging his own guilt is more important than making any changes to their lives that would be good for his kid. Victor's in a room by himself wearing a hood. Who's the hood for? It's not for Victor, that's for sure. Victor's mother is dead. There's no one else in the house but Paul. The hood is for Paul's comfort. And again, we're back to what the hell? Though this is a short segment accomplished with an economy of storytelling, if Serling as scriptwriter wanted us to feel one damn shred of sympathy for Paul's situation, he should have given us something more to go on than, well, he's a widower. But there's also the dangling question of the planet Boreon and its people. They look exactly like Victor. He looks exactly like them. Is this a coincidence? Or have the people of Boreon had unannounced contact with people from Earth in the past, which might explain Victor's appearance? None of this is explored or explained. It's just a nifty little coincidence that Victor is going to wind up living happily among others like him. Between that paucity of detail and the weird questions surrounding the motivations of Victor's father, I hate to say it, but I come away from this segment feeling like Serling was not on top of his game this time. It's a watered-down, trying-to-be-funny-about-it retelling of the Twilight Zone episode Eye of the Beholder, lacking both the punch and the pathos of the Twilight Zone episode. Tell David. 
Anne drives along through a ferocious thunderstorm, finally stopping when she spots a house with an attached garage. She decides to stop and wait out the storm, but before she can even knock on the door, a friendly voice pipes up on an intercom asking if she needs help. Anne says she's gotten lost and needs directions. The door opens automatically. Anne meets the voice at the other end of the intercom, Pat. She asks to use Pat's telephone, and Pat points her toward a futuristic-looking video phone. Anne tries to call her husband, but gets a busy signal or something. The call doesn't go through. Pat shows Anne some of the other modern marvels of the house. One-way privacy glass, a screen built into a wall capable of showing a closed-circuit TV view of Anne's car in the garage. And, oh, here's the gadget freak now. David, Pat's husband, comes down the stairs. He's got some kind of electronic map gadget that instantly pops up with the directions Anne needs. As Anne thanks her hosts for their hospitality, David mentions that he and Pat haven't made many friends yet, and they invite her to come back for a visit the following Monday. Sure, why not? Anne returns home. Her husband is a long-haired, wizened husk of a man who, you know, maybe needs to look into the exchange program on Boreon. He grills her to find out why she's late. He accuses her of having an affair, and then he pulls off the wig and the mask. Then they continue the screaming match. He's always at work or chilling at the bar with the boys. He doesn't trust her. He also doesn't show any consideration for her feelings. When she says she got lost in the storm, his answer is, well, it didn't rain here. Because, you know, rain is a universal phenomenon and not confined to a specific area with cloud coverage and appropriate atmospheric conditions. Oh, and what has Anne's husband been doing at home alone with the kid's nanny? God, what a fun couple these two are. Anne goes up to tuck in the kid. On Monday, Anne goes to David and Pat's place, where David's showing off some futuristic electronic music device to another woman who happens to be there. Pat's sitting there too, by the way, so this is clearly someone they both know. The sounds coming out of this box of flashing lights are barely even music to Anne's ears. David and Pat's visitor excuses herself, plants a big old kiss on David's lips right in front of his wife, grabs the music device, and leaves. And nobody had a problem with that. Okay... Anne steers the conversation toward family, mentioning her own son, David, who's about to turn four. And then the conversation turns to trust and jealousy. David remembers cutting his thumb on his fourth birthday when he tried to cut his own birthday cake. Then he tells Anne the story of his mother, a woman consumed by jealousy, a woman who killed his father shortly after David's fourth birthday because she suspected he was in love with someone else. Then David mentions that before the trial, his mother committed suicide. He was raised by his father's cousin. Wow. Okay. That brought the mood down just a little bit. We're all feeling a little less cosmic and a lot less groovy. Anne decides she needs to head home. She doesn't get a kiss on her way out. At home that evening, it's little David's birthday, and he cuts his thumb while trying to cut his own birthday cake. Anne's husband comes home. Oh, he went for drinks with his cousin, a female cousin who Anne has never met. Anne tells her husband what's happened, and she thinks that she's somehow visited their son in the future. Her husband dismisses this. Later that night, Anne catches her husband in the arms of young David's nanny. She shoots him at point-blank range and from behind bars announces she won't be needing a lawyer because she will never stand trial. And... the end? What? Oh, come on. Even weaker than the different ones, this story is... Wow. 
The moment older David starts giving away intimate details of his young life, and the moment Anne says her son's name is David, it's pretty much in the bag. There are no surprises left in the story. Again, the story hinges on details that are said to be 20-plus years into the future, and that's where this segment at least gets amusing. The future house is quintessentially 70s, and that staircase almost made me think that this was shot on the leftover Brady Bunch living room set. The closed-circuit TV panel built into the wall is just enormous. But even funnier is the microwave oven-sized electronic map gizmo. It must take a lot of horsepower to run Apple Maps on that thing. And for a box that big, you would think there would be a printer that could print Anne's directions for her, instead of David having to hand her paper and pencil so she can write down the directions as he reads them to her. Both David and Anne's husband are played by Jared Martin, before the Fantastic Journey, and way before the late 80s series revival of War of the Worlds, also before Dallas. Future David has a mustache, while Anne's husband doesn't. They're not performed as terribly different characters, and we never really get a firm grasp on what the relationship was between David and Pat, and that other woman, but, well, yeah, it was the 70s, figure it out. This segment was directed by Jeff Corey, the survivor of the Hollywood Red Scare blacklist that we've mentioned on numerous occasions in the past. He's a more than capable director. It's just a pity he didn't have a better script to work with here. Lagoda's Heads. Stop me if you've heard this one before. A bunch of white European males walk into an African village and demand to see the local witch doctor, a man named Lagoda. Major Crosby is in charge of this expedition, with the hot-headed Henley following him closely. Henley believes his brother went missing near this village. Crosby tries to keep the younger man in line while parlaying for an audience with Lagoda. To his surprise, Lagoda will see them, and Crosby attempts to make nice while asking after Henley's missing brother. A native girl named Kiro says that Henley's brother was here, and he's dead. Lagoda threatens to put a curse on her, but Crosby convinces her this is just superstition. She can tell him the truth. She says that Henley's brother died after coming to see Lagoda's heads, which are in another room of the witch doctor's hut. Crosby and Henley barge into that room, finding over a dozen shrunken heads hanging from a pole. Lagoda begins chanting in his native language, and the heads sway and move, seemingly at his command. And then they're still. Lagoda says the heads tell him that Henley's brother is alive and well in another village. Henley doesn't believe it, and Crosby tells Lagoda that his expedition will still search the village. No sign of Henley's brother is found, and the expedition prepares to leave, except the Kuro suddenly asks them to take her with them. Lagoda insists that she stay, but Crosby will permit her to go with them over the witch doctor's protest. Crosby's party makes it to a hunting cabin where Kiro asks for a guard to be placed on her door as she sleeps. She's worried that Lagoda will come for her, but nothing happens and everyone sleeps well. But the peaceful morning is disrupted by word from the village that Lagoda was murdered in his sleep, his body savaged as if by a wild beast. They return to the village where Major Crosby confirms the grisly account of Lagoda's death. He and Henley are stunned when Kiro says she did the deed with her own magic, magic stronger than Lagoda's. Lagoda knew how to make the heads speak, but Kiro knew how to make them kill. The end? I don't 
even know where to start with this one. This is an episode of Night Gallery that peaked at the beginning and steadily worked its way down to the bottom, ending with this cringy, super-cliched tale of darkest Africa. Early in this segment, Patrick McNee's character, Major Crosby, says, You're in a world you don't understand. Perhaps no white man really does. Uh, wow. It's good that the story acknowledges, and the characters acknowledge, that the uh, European expedition has no business and certainly no authority in Africa. Though at the first opportunity, Crosby exerts all kind of unearned authority over everyone within earshot. The performances aren't bad. Patrick McNee has had much better material both before and after this, whether you're talking The Avengers or Battlestar Galactica. What's really interesting is that Henley, the kid whose tail McNee's character repeatedly has to step on to keep him in line, is played here by a very, very young Tim Matheson. So young, in fact, that his 24th birthday was just two days after this episode's air date. But none of this makes up for casting the magnificent late, great Brock Peters as a stereotypical witch doctor. He brings a lot of presence to Lagota, just as Denise Nicholas brings a terrific unreadability to Kiro, but it's all in service of a backward-ass racist script that maybe, just maybe, shouldn't have been committed to film in the first place. It's based on a 1939 short story by August Derleth, who is a friend and protege of H.P. Lovecraft, and I'm sure it reflects the time in which it was written, it's interesting to note that the same short story was adapted again in 2017 with a new script for the YouTube old-time radio series revival Suspense, and Henley is now a woman looking for her brother in that adaptation. I'm not sure I've got the stomach to find out if it's any better or worse than this version. To give credit where it's due, nice crossfade from a skull in Lagoda's village to a taxidermied animal head on Crosby's wall, what is considered civilized and what isn't, is often separated by a very thin line, and it never hurts to ask the question, who has the privilege of defining that line? We'll be back with more Retrogram after a word from our sponsor. Ashley Thomas is the nerdy blogger. Ashley has a master's degree in literature and language, as well as a decade's worth of experience in writing for web publications. If you're looking for someone to assist you with copy for your website, blog posts, email campaigns, web store, social media management, or assistance with search engine optimization, Ashley's your gal. Ashley also spends her time writing about film, television, and comic books, contributing to sites such as fangirlish.com and popcultureretrorama.com. You can learn more about Ashley and the work she does at nerdyblogging.wordpress.com, where you can contact her for more information about her writing services. The Nerdy Blogger is proud to be a supporter of thelogbook.com and its podcasts. Who Season 9, Episode 1, Day of the Daleks, Part 1, aired Saturday, January 1st, 1972, on BBC One. The story so far. The Doctor and his time machine, the TARDIS, short for time and relative dimension in space, are stranded on Earth. 
to punish him for years of interfering in historical events both on Earth and elsewhere. The Doctor's own people, the Time Lords, have sentenced him to exile on Earth with a new face. The TARDIS is stuck unless the Time Lords activate it remotely. Left with no choice but to lead an Earth-bound existence, the Doctor reluctantly joins UNIT, the United Nations Intelligence Task Force, a paramilitary force tasked with defending Earth from what seems like an increasing number of invasion attempts by alien life. It helps that the Doctor, in his previous incarnation, had helped the head of UNIT's British operations, Brigadier Alistair Lethbridge-Stewart, fend off a couple of those invasions, though the Doctor finds himself uneasy with the Brigadier's shoot-first, ask-questions-later philosophy. With eager new UNIT recruit Joe Grant tagging along, the Doctor's new home is Earth, and he has no choice but to defend it. Day of the Daleks, Part 1 at an ornate country mansion called Otterley House in England, diplomat Sir Reginald Stiles works late into the night. He goes to close a window after what seems like the wind disturbs his drapery. But that's no wind. It's a dude. In some kind of camouflage fatigues, carrying a weapon that does not look like a weapon from the 1970s. Just as quickly, the man disappears. Sir Reginald is seriously shaken, but there's no evidence that anyone was there trying to kill him. Naturally, when something this odd happens to a person of Sir Reginald's importance, the brigadier gets a call about it at Unit HQ. It really doesn't help matters that the official statement says the attacker disappeared like a ghost, and the brigadier assures the Ministry of Defense that he's about to put his best man on the case. That would be the doctor, who is tinkering with the TARDIS console again, trying to remove the limitations the Time Lords placed on it, and on him, exiling him to Earth. Joe Grant, his assistant, watches on in some bewilderment, like it's fair to say that most of us would. All he manages to do with his latest attempt to get the TARDIS working again is, apparently, create an alternative time stream where he and Joe are looking at, well, he and Joe. Moments after the extra Doctor and Joe disappear, the Brigadier appears ready to put the Doctor and Joe on the Stiles case. Stiles is about to fly to China to get that country's diplomats to commit to international peace talks aimed at dashing some cold water on fears of World War III beginning in the near future. So his claim that someone may be trying to assassinate him carries some weight. Whether he's interested or not in human politics, and the doctor makes it clear that he really isn't interested, the brigadier is putting him in charge of the investigation. The man from the future who appeared to attack Sir Reginald and then appeared to disappear again pops out of thin air outside Otterley House. It's daytime, but the daytime of what day exactly? Ape-like creatures called Ogrons attack him and then vanish into a tunnel beneath a nearby railroad bridge. The doctor, Joe, and the brigadier pay Otterley House a visit, asking Sir Reginald's secretary, Miss Paget, to recount exactly what Stiles told her immediately after the incident. But then Sir Reginald himself arrives, and he's not pleased to be the topic of conversation. In fact, he denies his own recollection of a ghostly encounter, even when the doctor spots muddy footprints in the study where the encounter happened. Stiles seems to be taking every line of questioning as an attack on his mental fitness. He's due at the airport in an hour, and really doesn't care if the brigadier has his men search the grounds or not. But they do, and the man in combat fatigues and his futuristic weapon are found in short order. Oh, and something else he was carrying, a black box with a shoulder strap, a bit bigger than a tricorder. Not that we have tricorders in this show or have ever mentioned them in this podcast before. As the doctor ponders the function of the box that is definitely not a tricorder, we cut to 
the dystopian future. A man with slicked back hair and a black Nehru jacket sits in a large technologically advanced space. It might be the open plan office of the future. Or, you know, the control center for a fascist regime of the future. The two Ogrons, who presumably just left 20th century Earth after attacking their prey, report very simply and very slowly that they destroyed the enemy. They seem just a bit thick, but the controller to whom they report seems satisfied, advising them not to rest until the menace that the man they attack represents is completely eliminated. Back to 1972. Even after being shown the futuristic gun, Sir Reginald has no further comment. The man found by the bridge is loaded into an ambulance with the reliable Sergeant Benton accompanying him to the hospital. The doctor takes the gun and the black box to Unit HQ, where he quickly determines that the gun is a disintegrator using ultrasonic waves. And as for the black box? Cheap, nasty time travel. Very rudimentary and not very safe. He tries activating it, and it seems to vibrate in his hands and then stops working. But in the few seconds it was working, Sergeant Benton's charge vanished from the ambulance. The activation of the machine in the 20th century gets the attention of a technician in the future, but as the machine is only operational for mere moments, she can't do whatever the time travel equivalent is of tracing the call. The controller, remember the guy in the black Nehru jacket, dresses her down for not being faster on the draw, and then, oops, the boss is calling and wants to know why the controller and his people didn't catch that one. And in a moment that far too many of us can relate to, the boss turns out to be a Dalek. The doctor and Joe set up shop in Otterly House. Since Sir Reginald's 11th hour flight to China to save the summit talks is kind of an off-the-books thing, whoever is trying to kill him, well, he might try to kill the doctor instead, which sounds like a really badly thought-out plan, but at least the doctor will wind up with more information about who from the future is trying to assassinate Sir Reginald. Sergeant Benton and Captain Yates stand watch, and unit has men all over the grounds. The doctor, in the meantime, has helped himself to Sir Reginald's wine cellar, and some gorgonzola cheese, and reminisces about giving leadership advice to Napoleon, though he might not be serious about that last bit. Night falls. Three new people appear in the tunnel under the bridge in combat fatigues like their presumably fallen fellow soldier. A woman is in charge of this motley group, and she gives the order to wait until light. Morning in Orderly House, and nothing has happened. The doctor hasn't even slept, having stayed up all night to keep messing with the portable time travel box. At Unit HQ, the brigadier seems to not really be a morning person, but what does wake him up and his office staff is a bulletin from Unit's Central Command in Geneva. They consider war inevitable. Nothing has been heard from Sir Reginald Stiles since he left for China. Presumably, the unit troops watching Otterly House are having a similarly hard time keeping their eyes open because the three guerrilla combatants make their way up to the house, watching the doctor through the windows before they advance. One of the men walks into Sir Reginald's study, assuming the doctor is his target, and is treated to some Venusian martial arts. But what he seems most panicked about is not that he's just had his ass handed to him by a middle-aged man, but that the time travel box is emitting a strange hum. The future, the control room, the activation of the time travel device in the 20th century has set off the alarm again, and this time it has been traced to the exact space-time coordinates. The controller reports this news to the Daleks, whose orders are clear. Find whoever is operating the machine and exterminate them. Exterminate them so hard. I mean, really exterminate them. We mean it this time. To be continued. 
This was the beginning of the ninth season of classic Doctor Who, and it was a big deal that the Daleks were making their first showing since, let's see, the summer of 1967. There had been a couple of very minor hints that they were still part of the universe, one of them as recently as the previous year's story, The Mind of Evil, where at the end of Part 3, a Dalek could be heard, but not seen, as part of a gallery of horrors from the Doctor's past being fed back into his own mind by the alien killer machine which was, of course, under the control of the Master. And a Dalek was seen briefly during the second Doctor's trial in his final episode, Part 10 of The War Games, in 1969. But this was the first full-up Dalek story in five years, and it got a lot of promotion from the BBC, including some beautiful full-color Frank Bellamy comic art on the front page of the Radio Times. The Daleks had been seen in color before in the two Peter Cushing Doctor Who movies, but those weren't quite commonplace in television reruns just yet. Yet, so Daleks in color were still a novelty. But very much like the director of the first Peter Cushing Doctor Who movie, everyone had kind of forgotten what the Daleks sounded like. David Graham and Peter Hawkins, who had originated the Dalek voices in 1963, were not contracted to do the voices again for Day of the Daleks, where the voices were instead done in a very clipped and precise way by Oliver Gilbert and Peter Messaline. But because this is Doctor Who, you can go back in time and fix things. In 2011, Day of the Daleks was given a two-disc special edition release on DVD, with the first disc presenting the show as originally aired, wonky Dalek voices and all, and the second disc featuring a revised version that actually included newly shot footage of Daleks, Ogrons, and unit troops battling it out in part four. Because the DVD producers realized that the original show as aired featured somewhat lame battle sequences and not the all-out high-octane Dalek free-for-all that fandom often incorrectly remembers as having happened. So they made it happen. And in addition to that, Nicholas Briggs, the modern voice of the Daleks, replaced all of the 1972 Dalek voices with something more in line with the rest of the series. There are even a few bits of CGI here and there, and, George Lucas take note, the BBC issued this in such a way that you could watch the original, or you could watch the newly enhanced version, and left the choice up to the consumer. Who could even imagine such a thing? I'll even go so far as to admit that I watched that enhanced version for my review here, but I've seen the original so many times that I know what the enhancements are. And how have I watched the original a ridiculous number of times? Because Day of the Daleks was one of the very first Doctor Who stories ever released on home video way back in 1986, when it was released commercially on VHS, Laserdisc, and Betamax. Along with The Five Doctors and Revenge of the Cybermen, this story has been commercially released more times than any other Doctor Who stories in the history of the original series. Speaking of the new series, holy cow, is this story influential there. The Gold Dalek was quite a stunning thing to see in 1972, and that iconic look can be seen even in modern Doctor Who, as nearly every Dalek we see has armor somewhere between gold and bronze. Though it's credited to writer Lewis Marks, Day of the Daleks underwent some radical revisions from his original story pitch about a kind of apocalyptic grandfather paradox. That pitch was titled The Ghost Hunters and had no Daleks in it whatsoever, but producer Barry Letts had Marks add them to the script because he was keen to have them return in the season opener, largely for publicity and promotional purposes. 
And to be fair, that was a pretty good idea. Three of this story's four episodes brought in 9 million viewers each, except for part two, which brought in 10 million sets of eyeballs. Mark's original idea was to do a kind of fictional version of the Six-Day War, but with time travel. It's worth noting that at the time the scripts were written and filmed, the Six-Day War was only four years ago. Day of the Daleks was directed by Paul Bernard, who was also behind the camera for two later John Pertwee stories, The Time Monster and Frontier in Space, and later returned to directing theater productions. There are some great bits of business with the unit characters here that humanizes them greatly. Rather than being bitterly at odds with the Doctor, the Brigadier now really seems amused by him. He gently ribs the Doctor about not being able to get the TARDIS roadworthy again, and while he has questions about what's going on, when the Doctor delivers an analysis or a hypothesis, he's generally on board with it, because no one's got a better explanation. I also like the bit where the Brigadier laments the fact that he's apparently up too early to even get coffee. During the nighttime scenes at the house, the rapid succession of Benton and then Yates trying to mooch cheese and wine off of Joe is pretty amusing. The Daleks are seen very sparingly in part one, and when that first one shows up and yells, Report! It's genuinely jarring. I mean, I know they're in the episode's title and everything, but by that point in the story, you've gotten used to this being a story about a ghost sighting and an escalating international situation. Now throw shouty Daleks into the middle of it, and it's like, well, crap. Things just got even worse. They're here. Day of the Daleks is an intriguingly rare instance of time travel being at the heart of the story, and not just the vehicle that drops the Doctor and company into the middle of events. The whole story is about time travel being used to rewrite history, but the real twist of the story that we learn in later episodes is that the resistance movement's return to the past is what caused their own present. It's a nice little time paradox that isn't jumping through too many hoops to prove how clever the writer is, which is a description I normally reserve for, well, the entire Stephen Moffat era. It's a time travel story that the audience is capable of comprehending without a massive dialogue info dump partway through the story, and very nicely constructed. Day of the Daleks is an old favorite of mine, like a comfortable old blanket. It's just some Doctor Who comfort food, and I highly recommend it. Mission Impossible, Season 6, Episode 15, The Bride, aired Saturday, January 1st, 1972, on CBS. It's a meeting of crime syndicate bosses, and it's not going well. A man named Anders is accused of pocketing $150,000 of money that he was supposed to be depositing in a Swiss bank account for his employers, and he's shown out of the room, forcefully. I mean, he's still walking upright when he leaves, don't worry about that, but I think his range of job opportunities just narrowed quite a bit. But that brings up the question of the next operation, moving eight million bucks internationally, this time without Anders' help. Joe Corvin, the man who just fired Anders, assures his boss, Frank, that he'll find a way. Richie, the thug who's escorting Anders off the premises, stands at an elevator waiting for the doors to open. They open, and he bids Anders farewell, before pushing him through the doorway into a shaft with no elevator car. Well, it's over a decade before L.A. law. There's no way Anders could have seen that coming. I think his job opportunities just narrowed a lot, like pancaked, maybe. Jim Phelps opens a locker at the gym, and hey, it's the tape recorder. You didn't think Phelps was here for a workout, right? 
Surprise, surprise, his mission, should he choose to accept it, and I can't really think of a single time Phelps ever chose not to, is to track down Joe Corvin and put him out of business, because American law enforcement can't nail him for moving mob money into Swiss bank accounts, or for murder, another thing they're pretty sure he's good at. Time to assemble the team. Casey, as the makeup expert, has to make sure that other members of the team can pass for known people in Corvin's operation, but she's also got to pose as Corvin's new European bride and then fake her own death as part of the operation. That includes making a lifelike dummy of herself with a deathly pallor to her skin color. She admits that it hasn't really been her favorite assignment so far. She's also furnished with pills that will make sure she has no vital signs within three minutes of taking them. It's not that she'll be dead, but she'll be close enough that no one else can tell that. This whole plan hinges on her. An airport. Corvin and Richie await the arrival of Corvin's bride, and there she is. Well, it's Casey, but Phelps has set all of this up and has been pulling the strings for quite some time. The woman Corvin was actually expecting has been detained somewhere in Europe. Casey, under the name Kathleen Deegan, makes some small talk with Corvin and then feigns a queasy spell. That's the signal for Phelps to emerge from the background and hand her something she left on the plane, which she says is her medication when her stomach takes one of these funny turns. Richie gets Kathleen's bags, and the happy couple is off. Barney Collier introduces himself to Frank as Mr. Kingby, Ender's superior. He offers to do what Corvin's doing, moving mob money overseas for only an 8% cut of the action, as opposed to Corvin's 10%. Frank isn't impressed and warns Kingby that Corvin will eliminate him if he learns that his position within the organization is being threatened. But Kingby projects just enough of a badass vibe and drops just enough information indicating he knows exactly what happened to Ender's that it leaves Frank wondering as he makes his exit. It's just as well Frank's got a party to get ready for, a party where Corvin is introducing Casey, uh, <clears throat> Kathleen, to his business associates. As she works the room, Corvin pulls her aside for a barely friendly warning. Don't ask these people what they do for a living. Don't even ask me what I do. Don't ask a lot of questions. After laying this beautiful, solid foundation of trust and mutual respect, Corvin whips out a fancy necklace dripping with diamonds, puts it on her, and then it's back to the party. A party where Kathleen is all but forbidden from even so much as talking to anybody. Cool. Cool. That's perfectly normal. Collins Mortuary. Willie Armitage is snooping around and adding a little bit of custom-made circuitry to the electrical system. He's there because Collins Mortuary gets a lot of business from Mr. Corvin, if you get my drift. Corvin brings a lot of cremation business in the door, capiche? That's why Willie's casing the place. At Joe Corvin's party, Frank has just arrived and he dispenses with the pleasantries. He needs to talk to Corvin ASAP. Frank warns Corvin about that visit from Mr. Kingby and says that even he was tempted to engage Kingby's services. So it's time for a loyalty test. Move the eight million bucks tomorrow night. He also drops a little nugget of info. Kingby has arranged for a breakfast meeting with one of the other guys in the operation tomorrow morning. Cut to tomorrow morning. Kingby returns to his car from the meeting and is joined by a man with a gun. You drive, I'll give the directions. Rough neighborhood. Can you imagine Apple Maps getting the drop on you like that? No wonder they invented GPS later in the 70s. Such a hassle. But this has all been planned. Willie is watching Barney from a discreet distance and reporting back to Phelps. The breakfast appointment was just to make sure that Kingby attracted the wrong kind of attention. When Kathleen awakens at Corbin's place, she finds Richie the Enforcer guy downstairs. 
He tells her something came up, and Corvin's going to be gone most of the day. This upsets her. It wasn't part of the plan, and just then there's a phone call. It's for her, from some guy at the airline. It's actually Phelps calling, but Richie picks up another phone and listens in as Phelps tells Casey where to meet him. Richie waits for her to catch a cab and trails her. Corvin's boys have been working Barney, I mean Kingby, over for information. Barney looks kind of rough, but he's still talking tough. If Corvin kills him, Kingby has a list of Corvin's banking clients and a full rundown on Corvin's activities, records presumably kept by the late Mr. Anders that will be sent out to just the right people. Well, really, the wrong people from where Corvin's standing. Kingby wants to make a deal, half of Corvin's 10% of the money that has to be moved tonight. And it's not like Corvin has a lot of options in that regard. Richie waits for Casey to make it to the hotel room to meet the guy from the airport and then kicks down the door, gun in hand, and he finds, well, it looks like Phelps and Casey are getting ready to do some heroin. Phone call for Joe Corvin. It's Richie, still holding Phelps and Casey at gunpoint and reporting to Corvin that his blushing bride is a junkie. Corvin tells his men to keep Kingby locked up while he goes to deal with the future Mrs. Corvin. Despite Kathleen pleading that she takes narcotics for pain she has suffered since falling off a horse a year ago, Corvin's just not interested in explanations and has Richie take her home. Then he asks Phelps questions about how he moves the drugs around and asks Phelps if he'd like to make a cool 40 grand tonight. Actually, it's not a request. If Phelps turns Corvin down, he's a dead man. Know who else is a dead man? How about Kingby? After Corvin calls his boys, they reveal to Kingby that his entire conversation with Corvin was tape recorded, and if he tries to get into their operation again, the tape will be sent to his boss. Now get out of here. At Corvin's place, Richie tries to put the moves on Kathleen, telling her that he can get her her fix, and they can have a little fun together. She throws a drink in his face and storms off up the stairs. Corvin comes home. Richie tells him that Kathleen went upstairs and locked herself in her room. When she hears Corvin arrive, that's Casey's cue to take the pill, you know, the one that slows her vital signs to the point that she seems dead. And she sends a signal to Phelps with a transmitter built into her ring, then knocks a bunch of stuff into the floor and makes a lot of noise before going down. Richie breaks down the door and they find her collapsed across the bed, needle in hand. No pulse, no nothing. Corvin gets a call from Phelps telling him to meet him right away. Corvin tells Richie to make arrangements with Collins Mortuary, another cremation. The hearse pulls up. While the Collins Mortuary guys are up at Corvin's place retrieving Kathleen's body, Barney punches a hole in the hearse's radiator. Corvin arrives at the airport. Phelps warns him the airline security is being tightened because of a terrorist threat. There won't be any way to move the money that goes undetected. Then a hearse pulls up to the plane's cargo door and a casket is taken on board. Corvin's got a bright idea. Cut to Collins Mortuary. The hearse's radiator problem has been discovered, and Mr. Collins tells his underling to call and rent another hearse, just as they're about to roll Casey into the furnace. Corvin calls with a request. No cremation. Embalm the body instead and have it brought to the airport in a casket. Casket, as casket in which Corvin will hide the eight million bucks, betting that nobody's going to check inside a coffin. An ambulance pulls up, and it's all part of the plan, with Willie and Barney pulling a switcheroo that removes Casey from harm's way and leaves the fake corpse of herself that she made up instead. Richie prepares to take the money to Corvin, but Frank decides to tag along, unsure of Corvin's ability to pull this whole thing off. 
The plan is somewhat cunning. The cash will be stashed in a pillow under the corpse's head. Richie and Frank insist on riding along in the hearse, with Corvin following in a limo, wishing that Frank would just keep his nose out of this. Who else is in the limo? Barney hiding in a secret compartment. There are he no grabs longer the pillow that has the cash in it, then travel. hides himself again, making his escape with the pillow before the casket is unloaded. Barney sneaks into a delivery vehicle driven by Willie, and now only Phelps is in harm's way. There's a mishap as the casket is being loaded on the plane. It falls off the conveyor belt, tumbles to the ground, and the body inside is obviously a dummy. And the pillow full of cash? That's obviously missing. Frank grills Corvin. Where's the money? Then he turns his attention to Phelps, who claims that Corvin wanted two tickets to Miami. With that, Frank and his men bundle Corvin and Richie into a limo and drive off, leaving Phelps behind. At Joe Corvin's place, a very terse conversation between soon-to-be former business partners is made even more awkward when Casey comes down the stairs very much alive and with two tickets for Miami in her purse. Frank tells her to get out of here, and then he and his men get ready to introduce Corvin to the elevator shaft. The end. This is kind of a middle-of-the-road Mission Impossible episode. The further you get into this series, the more unlikely the plots become, and the more suspension of disbelief is required by the means by which the IMF saves the day. The various team members sometimes seem like they're facing life-or-death stakes, and sometimes no stakes at all. It's really a bit weird. The notion of sending Casey back into the lion's den at the end of the story for a TV-ready punchline scene is kind of crazy. Surely they would kill her on the spot. By the same token, it's kind of amazing that Phelps is allowed to just walk away from the whole operation when he knows so much about what's gone down. If it weren't for the taped briefing at the top of the show that makes it clear that neither Interpol nor the FBI have been able to stop the bad guys from moving mob money around at their leisure, you could be forgiven for thinking that these are the most inept mobsters you've ever seen on television. The Godfather was three months and change away from debuting in American theaters. This kind of, oh gosh, shucks, simplistic view of the mafia might be okay for the middle of season six of Mission Impossible, but it wasn't going to cut it much longer. Writer Jackson Gillis was no stranger to small-screen crime thrillers. He wrote episodes of Perry Mason, Mannix, Ironside, Columbo, Starsky and Hutch, and Murder, she wrote. And this was the second of three scripts he wrote for Mission Impossible, but he also had a firm handle on the fantastic writing scripts for episodes of both The Man and the Girl from Uncle, Lost in Space, The Wild Wild West, Land of the Giants, Wonder Woman, Jason of Star Command, and Knight Rider. And get this, among his earliest TV writing credits were episodes of the George Reeve Adventures of Superman series in the 1950s, while his very last screen credit was a 1994 episode of Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman. I think chances are exceedingly good that future installments of Retrogram will discuss Jackson Gillis's work. We lost Jackson in 2010 at the age of 93. Is Corvin Irish or Italian? His accent seems to drift aimlessly between the two. Accents are hard to maintain for a sustained performance if they're, you know, not your native accent. And it probably doesn't help matters that we're now well out of the live TV recorded to tape era. Everything's being shot out of order depending on availability of sets and locations. And he may have gotten different notes from the director at different points during the shooting schedule. Still, it's such an inconsistent accent that it kind of takes me out of things sometimes. Does Collins the Mortuary Guy seem familiar? 
it's Woodrow Parfrey, later of Time Express, which, well, I don't know if you'd want to call any association with Time Express fame, but he was the ticket collector in all four episodes of Time Express, which was CBS's time-traveling answer to Super Train. The word fame cannot really be applied to either show, and we'll discuss those later. Hooray! It's the 70s trope of someone picking up another phone receiver to listen in on a conversation and talk about something that all of us of a certain age remember, and yet it seems like such a wildly foreign concept now in the age of cell phones. I always relish the idea of showing scenes like this to younger folks who have only ever known cell phones, and they're probably thinking, geez, people in the 70s had no privacy, while the phone in their pocket tracks their every move. In some ways, this week of genre TV feels a bit like three old favorites, some of which weren't that old, trying desperately to stay afloat in an era where moon landings had seemingly become routine. When Doctor Who's ratings are flagging, then or now, you can expect the Daleks to come calling. Mission Impossible is trying very hard to stay ahead of the curve, but it was struggling under the weight of the show's shift from evil foreign dictators and or communists to something barely resembling organized domestic crime as its big bad. And Night Gallery was already remixing Twilight Zone stories and hoping no one would notice, though that's far from the worst problem that the show had during this particular week. Retrogram will be returning to the theme of 72 at 50 to see if the rest of the year got any better where genre TV was concerned. podcast was researched, written, and hosted by Earl Green. The show's theme music was composed and performed by Jazar and licensed under Creative Commons. You can find his work at betterwithmusic.com and at freemusicarchive.org. If you like Retrogram, give a big thanks to the logbook.com's Patreon supporters. If you love Retrogram, become one of them. Every little bit helps keep the logbook.com and its podcasts and videocasts going. You can be like Philip, Kevin, Estoroslovak, Ferg, Darwin, Cindy, IC Robots, Paul, Mark, Charles, and Ashley, and you can sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash the logbook. If monthly contributions aren't your thing, we totally get that too, because, you know, maybe Corvin got some of your money and ran off with it, you can buy us a coffee at ko-fi.com slash the logbook as well. You can also support the site by buying t-shirts, other clothing and household goods, and even face masks and more from our store at thelogbook.redbubble.com, with designs featuring everything from classic Odyssey 2 games to space missions to, you know, I think there's a t-shirt that has the logbook.com logo with a little space shuttle zooming away from it. Just saying. You can order all sorts of things from Amazon and eBay through our affiliate links at thelogbook.com slash store. And if you like watching stuff, feel free to sign up for Paramount Plus through our links. And if you decide to stay as a subscriber, that helps the logbook and retrogram out a lot. Retrogram is a production of thelogbook.com.